Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today we're going to be talking about climate change with Joseph Mikan of the Niskanen Center. But before we got into that, since this is an area that I love to talk about, uh, Doug and I thought we would chat a little bit about it first, and he had some, some questions for me. Josiah, what is carbon, and can anyone other than God Almighty produce it? <laughs> well, uh, if you ever have heard a politician speak, uh, carbon is coming right out of their mouth. It's the hot air. Uh, you know, the uh, we're about to have the 50th anniversary of the moon landing next year. There's some, some movies coming out about it. And you might have noticed that it's a lot colder on the moon than it is on the Earth, even though we're approximately the same distance away from the sun. And one reason why it's as warm on the earth as it is, is because we've got an atmosphere and parts of the atmosphere trap heat. It's the so-called greenhouse effect. It's good that that exists because uh, otherwise we'd all freeze to death. Uh, at the same time, if we were to thicken uh, or increase the heat trapping properties of the atmosphere, that could be pretty bad. Uh, and that does seem to be what we are doing uh, by burning fossil fuels and doing other things, you know, clearing agriculture, cutting down trees, that sort of stuff. Just so I understand, is the issue that carbon itself a bad thing or is it just because it's these particulates in the air that are creating this greenhouse effect? No, it's, it's carbon is the stuff of life, right? There's nothing wrong with carbon. It's all, you know, it's a question economists talk about thinking at the margin, right? So it's not is carbon good or bad, but how much of it is good? And is doubling the amount that's in the atmosphere, it's probably going to be costly and uh, increase some some sorts of risks for us going forward. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about the carbon tax. There's a bit of a philosophical battle on the right. A couple weeks back, in fact, I saw that uh, you and Banskin of the Texas Public Policy Foundation actually had competing articles pro and con uh, the carbon tax at the exact same moment in the Texas Tribune, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so tell me a little bit from your perspective what the conservative argument is for a carbon tax. Sure. So the carbon tax has one really bad thing about it, which is the name tax, right? I don't like taxes. I don't know too many people who do. However, you know, unless we're anarchists, we have to concede that some level of tax is necessary in order to fund the core functions of government. And so then the question is, well, if we need some tax revenue, isn't it better to get that by taxing things that we want left less of, like emissions, rather than what we currently do, which is tax things we want more of, like work, uh, jobs, and investment. So what I've advocated is, yes, let's do a carbon tax, uh, but use the revenue to replace existing taxes uh, cut income taxes, uh, payroll taxes, whatever, what have you. And if you do that, that will largely reduce uh, or eliminate the overall economic costs of the carbon tax. And you could even get a net positive in terms of economic growth in addition to the environmental benefits that come from the lower emissions. So that's that's the case in a nutshell. Right. 
tell me what the what the policy objective is then from a conservative standpoint. And, and let me kind of explain it where my question's coming from. There's an idea of the universal basic income, and this is in a completely different uh, field. There's this idea the government should provide a basic level of income to individuals because of income inequality. On the surface, this idea of universal basic income sort of appeals to conservatives and libertarians at a certain level because it looks a little bit like Milton Friedman's old idea of about a negative tax, where at a certain level below the poverty line, there'd be an income tax actually paid back to uh, a low-income taxpayer rather than them paying the tax. But the difference is what the policy objective is. So one is the stated objective is we want to we want to fight income inequality where the other one is more poverty alleviation. And so with that in mind, my question is what's the policy objective from a from a conservative standpoint about a carbon tax? Is it more let's eliminate the emissions or what? What exactly is the policy objective? Sure. So it's a little odd in that you are trying to uh, do two things at once. It does two things. Uh, One purpose of the carbon tax is to correct for the fact that there are costs that come from emissions uh, that aren't being borne by the people who are causing them, right? Uh, Economists would call this a negative externality, but it's basically the, the emissions are harming third parties through the effects of global warming. So the people who are benefiting from that don't bear those costs, and so the, the tax would be a way of, of correcting for that. At the same time, the other and also very important uh, element of it is it's an opportunity for tax reform. Right. So as I mentioned, you can use the revenue to cut other taxes that are more harmful to the economy. And people might be interested in that aspect of it, even if they don't really care about emissions per se. I'm dating myself a little bit here, but there's an old Saturday Night Live sketch where it's a, a commercial parody where there's a, a couple that are arguing about whether some new product is a floor wax or a dessert topping, right? And they go back and forth. It's a floor wax, it's a dessert topping, it's a floor wax, it's a dessert topping. And then the announcer comes out and says, hold on, guys. It's a floor wax and a dessert topping, right? So that's kind of what the carbon tax is. It's you know two separate things that you can achieve together with one policy. But you are a think tank guy. You you sit there comfortably in your ivory tower, and you don't have to deal with retail politics. But politicians demagogue everything. So how do you, and this probably is a question that we could play out over any number of policy issues over time, but how do you, as you're developing policy concepts, how do you ensure that those ideas don't sort of be that what you what you intend for for good doesn't get used for evil? How do you ensure that you know in this case when I say evil, reducing emissions to zero, which means we return to the dark ages? How do you prevent that? So there is a political scientist named Roger Pelkey, and he has coined what he calls the Iron Law of Climate Policy, which is this, uh, which is that if there's ever a conflict between policies to reduce emissions and policies to promote economic growth, the economic growth policies are going to win every time, right? No government, no democratic government anyway, is going to institute policies to reduce emissions down to zero if that's going to send us back to the dark ages. And if they try, when the next election comes along, they're going to get uh, voted out of office and replaced by people who will repeal that and lead us back to, to growth. So that's that would kind of be my answer there is I think that there, you know, people 
right? Uh, naturally, do not want to go back to the Dark Ages, with very few exceptions. And if politicians start leading us in that direction, they will punish them for it. I can see that. I, I, I don't know too many po- politicians, particularly successful politicians, that run on an austerity program. So one of the questions I have for you is, how is this idea, from your perspective of a carbon tax, how is it different than, say, Al Gore's cap-and-trade? So there's a couple differences between cap-and-trade and carbon tax. There's a, there's a technical difference, and then there's a political difference. The technical difference is that with the carbon tax, you're setting a constant fee or rate for the tax, but the amount of emissions is determined by the market response, right? So if you say we're going to put a $20 a ton tax on CO2 emissions, people could respond by just paying the tax and not changing emissions that much, or they could find ways to radically reduce emissions at at low cost. Either of those is possible. With the Cap and trade, it's the opposite. You're setting the amount of emissions that you want, and the price that people have to pay in order to do that is going to fluctuate depending you know, uh, on how much the, the, the trade is going to be. So you could say, well, you know, we're going to have 5% fewer emissions than last year, and if people can do that at zero cost, the tradable permits will have a very low value. If it turns out to be very difficult, the cost could be pretty pretty high. So that's if you ask an economist, that's a technical answer that they would give you as far as the difference goes. In terms, the the big political difference is, in my view, that cap and trade tends to be a lot more complicated administratively. Uh, If you think about the gas tax, people can pay the, individual consumers can pay the gas tax. Uh, It's a straightforward thing. If you were to try and have tradable permits for how many gallons of gasoline you could buy. It'd be very complicated. Uh, It's very easy for companies to come in and demand special exemptions. And in terms of, you know, the other the other half of the coin, the using the revenue to cut taxes, that's difficult if you don't if the amount of the tradable permits, you don't know what they're going to be costing uh, and so forth. So for that reason, I, I tend to favor a carbon tax over cap and trade even though I generally don't like taxes and I do like trade. Well, Josiah, that was really interesting, but let's continue the conversation with Joseph Mikett. Our guest today is Joseph Mikett, who is the Director of Climate Policy at the Niskanen Center. Welcome to the program. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. We want to talk about a number of recent items and actions relating to climate policy coming out of the administration and Congress. But I'd like to take a moment first to talk about uh, the big picture. Why should anyone care about climate change? We care about climate change because climate is this sort of assumed fundamental state of the world upon which all this other stuff sits, right? Like where we locate ourselves, um, the things we do, uh, how we produce food, how we make money, and sort of, you know, how how we relate to the natural world. Those are things that people care about. And there are like real, you know, economic and health stakes involved on the margins. Climate, particularly this human caused climate change that we're currently experiencing, could profoundly shift a lot of those relationships. In some ways, that's predictable. And you can reduce the costs of those shifts. 
Uh, in some places, that may be good, but the shift that we we could encounter if we keep going along the way things have or had been going, that uh, the the shift was profound enough that that involves uh, pretty severe risks. One thing that I hear commonly from people is that they say CO2 can't be a problem because it's uh, plant food, plants like it, and therefore it's not an issue. Because plants like CO2, we are actually going to experience less climate change than we would otherwise. Before I worked in the policy and politics surrounding climate, I was a, a scientist, a chemical oceanographer. One of the key insights that we've gotten over the last few years in climate science that I think goes underappreciated, plants do tend to grow better in high CO2 environments. That's why a lot of commercial greenhouses elevate the amount of CO2 that they uh, grow plants in. And actually, that, that's been happening in the real world, which has it has the effect of pulling CO2 that we had added by burning fossil fuels or clearing land back down into the biosphere and then into soils. So there's actually less CO2 in the atmosphere because of this stimulated plant growth than there would have been otherwise. Yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, yeah, science I, is nice. Yeah. <laughs> We've been helped out by Mother Nature. I would say that that effect of the emissions is, you know, is good, right? Greater greening or growing, but it's, of course, possible for more CO2 emissions to have both good and, and bad effects, right? It's sort of like saying water is necessary for life, therefore flooding can't be a problem, right? <laughs> food necessary for life, obesity still a problem. It's it's not, should we have no carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? That would be pretty bad, but should we be doubling what we had for the last thousand years in in uh, in short order? Yeah, and I think actually probably the best analogy there, it's, it's imperfect, but it is actually is probably the food one, right? Like, you have to eat to live. And a lot of folks will say, well, hey, the, the modern economy runs on fossil fuels. We don't have alternatives that are readily available and you cut off the use of fossil fuels, a lot of people are going to suffer. At the moment, uh, you know, kind of if you were to cut out all, all fuel use, that's that. Yeah, that's true. Right. But also, if you eat too much, you you can you create a lot of potential health problems for yourself. Can you live a really long time being overweight and having diabetes? Yes. But do you create a lot of health risks? Yes. We've talked big picture. Tell us a little bit about your approach at the Niskanen Center. And Niskanen, what we're saying, what we argue is that the United States should embrace carbon pricing, which says that, you know, you should be free to emit as long as you're willing to pay prices for fossil fuels or emissive technologies that reflect the fact that they're emitting rather than sending government regulators into every nook and cranny of the economy because people emit in a lot of different business models for a lot of different reasons at a lot of different levels. How does that type of approach differ from Al Gore's uh, cap and trade? At the fundamental level, they're probably not that different. They're both trying to assign a price. There's a philosophical difference in what you want to be more certain if you want to use a cap and trade system, you're saying the U.S. is going to emit at this level or below this level and people can trade and, and buy offsets to accomplish that. But there's very little price certainty, right? You don't really know what the price of permits are going to be, but we allocate enough permits to em emit at this level and then, you know, businesses go ahead and figure that out. The, the kind of the carbon tax or carbon pricing um, perspective says what we think should be pretty stable is the price, and then we will let emissions fall where they may. In terms of practice, it's not clear that the oftentimes 
what ends up becoming policy looks like a hybrid between the two. I think there's there's also an additional difference. Uh, it, it's not theoretical, but just in terms of practice, which is uh, with cap and trade, you tend to have more systems where the permits are initially uh, allocated to people who are already in, in, emitting, right? So the, the current emitters... Uh, get the permits and then they can trade them away. Whereas with a lot of carbon tax systems, the tax money goes to uh, the government. You know, there's not as much grandfathering, and then that you know, there's a big question of what you do with that money. At, at our street, you know, we've been proponents of using that money to replace existing taxes. So you do some sort of tax swap. Uh, you know, there's other folks who want to just mail out rebate checks. You know, there's been proposals to use the money for uh, highway construction, all sorts of different different stuff. Recently, we did have carbon tax legislation introduced in Congress. Uh, Representative Curbelo of Florida uh, introduced the, the Market Choice Act. Uh, that establishes a carbon tax. Ms. Cannon was involved in the rollout of that legislation. I'd like to get your perspective on it. Well, I'm relatively excited about it. Carbon tax policy or carbon pricing policy is an interesting place where there's just this like overwhelming consensus amongst economists, academic economists, um, public finance experts, and, and environmental policy wonks such as myself that carbon pricing is a really good idea. And yet it exists in very limited places in terms of actual policy. The more we see specific proposals, the more likely I think it is that we we actually kind of see something come into effect. So in that context, I'm very excited to see it. I'm also very excited to see it because I think the the leading member, Carlos Curbelo, is a really smart guy. He really cares about climate and he's trying to craft something that he thinks has could have legs with his Republican colleagues because, you know, in the American political system, the moment we find ourselves right now, the, the Republican Party is a blocking agent on on doing some of this stuff. We we were fortunate enough to to work with Mr. Corbello's office, you know, provide feedback on on early drafts, considerations that they might think about. And then we had early previews and we were able to to kind of you know comment on the rollout. And I I'll self-plug for a moment. We wrote a legislative analysis that interested listeners may want to head to the Niskanen Center website and and check out which really goes into the kind of the the, the nitty-gritty details of the bill, because while I say carbon tax policy is is simple and fair, you know, doing anything that is going to affect 20% of the U.S. economy uh, ends up being a little bit complicated. The the policy that framework or Mr. Curbelo has designed says we're going to raise what I would call an intermediate carbon tax. It's about it starts at 23 or 24 dollars a ton of greenhouse gas emissions. It falls on, uh, you know, all fossil fuel energy as well as some industrial emitters like cement factories, glass factories, things like that. And that, and the purpose of that is to, you know, find ways of economically efficient, economically efficiently reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It raises a bunch of revenue, and it, and the revenue is largely slated to uh, supporting infrastructure and reducing consumer costs. Now, one way it reduces consumer costs is by abolishing the federal gas tax because because there would be a big, you know, there's a price increase associated with the emissions of greenhouse gases in gasoline. Mr. Grabella chose to abolish the federal gas tax. And the, I think there's a, a political message there. We're trading a tax for a tax. And 
and you know that allows us to suddenly inflation index transportation funding it raises more money over the long term because you're touching these other sectors which would allow for you know additional spending on infrastructure and i think that's largely a political message right that there is a lot of appetite in congress uh, amongst both parties as well as with the president to uh, update dilapidated infrastructure in the us and modernize for the 21st century and this is a potential source of revenue for that i understand you, the concern that you know it's not revenue neutral that that may not be the most maximally productive use of additional revenue into the treasury but my you know we've we've looked at several economic analyses and it seems like the cost associated with this policy in terms of like overall gdp is is pretty small thank you very much for joining us today uh it was a super uh, pleasure thank you for having me this is like complex but very interesting stuff to think about 